So at this time, I'm going to invite Gordon Wright, a friend and a brother of the church. Come on up, Gordon. He's going to share a little bit about his uh, life journey and also from the Word. So uh, <laughs> let's thank the Lord for Gordon. All right. So let me pray. Uh, Lord, you uh, are a good God. You have blessed thank Gordon you. in so many ways, and you've used him in so many ways. Yeah. And so, uh, Lord, we're grateful that he's here uh, this morning, and he's going to share from Jesus. your word, and uh, he's going to speak truth to us. And Lord, prepare our ears and our minds and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. And bless Gordon and his family as uh, they journey with you uh, through this life, sharing the gospel with people amen. who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning. I wanted to thank you for any and all prayers that were given for me because of my not being able to be here last year. I usually come in the fall, and uh, it was July, and through a normal examination, I was uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer, and it was quite advanced, and so they performed surgery at the end of August. And so I missed two itinerations, one in New England and one here. And uh, just recently had a blood test, and there's a PSA level for you guys. By the way, I'm on a prostate crusade, so if you guys haven't got your PSA checked, you need to get it checked. I told a friend of mine that. You know, he lives in Yuma, Arizona. He said, man, I've never had that done. He went and got it checked, then he's got cancer. You know. They say if a guy lives long enough, you're going to have to deal with something in that area. But So uh, they did a blood test, and uh, it's like 0.17, which is infinitesimal. So I'm totally cancer-free, and I'm very encouraged by that. So, and I'm healthy. I lost, lost some weight. It's really good. Um, I'm going to share some slides with you, and we'll try to move quickly through them. Uh, I wanted to share with you basically uh, what we do the rest of the time when we're not in the United States. Uh, in spring and fall, I go to Russia and Ukraine, and I've been doing that since 1989. Uh, when the wall came down, we went into Russia, 1989, by train. We had contacts with the unregistered church, and we developed a network. Uh, the next spring, we took in... Uh, actually shipped in Bibles. There was a whole warehouse of Bibles. Uh, 1990, spring of 1990, sponsored by World Compassion, and I was involved in the distribution of those Bibles. It was pretty exciting. And a number of the men there that were men who had been in prison uh, for a number of years. When Gorbachev uh, was president, uh, he gave a national amnesty to all nonviolent political prisoners, just let them out of prison en masse, uh, probably 90% of those were pastors, so it was really amazing. I got to meet a lot of uh, really esteemed guys, you know, in their 70s, been in prison. One guy was in prison for 24 years. I mean, it was just amazing. So basically, I've been going uh, twice a year since then in the spring and the fall, so that's 30 years. And I had one of the brothers ask me, he said, you know, everybody else is going on with different places, you know, Basically, the cloud moves, you know. Now it's Islam, and, and really, there's not as much going on in Russia and Ukraine. And they asked me why I was still there. And I said, well, I, I'm committed to you. I love you. And he just started to weep. It was really incredible. Some of these pictures you're going to see, 
you have to remember that in 30 years, freedom has come. The church has grown incredibly because when I first went there, they were just little house churches. And in Kiev, there was about 70 believers in this particular network of churches. And now there's hundreds of churches with two and 300 people in each church. And there is total freedom in both Russia and Ukraine, their constitutions. It's interesting, in Russia, they passed a law where the state church is the Russian Orthodox Church, so they receive funds, but it didn't impair uh, the Protestant church because the constitution still has religious freedom, the new constitution. And uh, of course, Ukraine's like that also, so incredible growth. So we're gonna see Russia, Ukraine, Spring, I usually come back. I have to come back through a European country. We come through uh, Spain, and my daughter is serving there with Youth with a Mission. Uh, there's community centers they've set up to train uh, immigrants in computer skills and uh, Spanish. And she was teaching Spanish. She's an American, but she's very fluent. But now she has a thing called uh, King's Kids Kids Club and she's teaching the parables of Jesus to Arabic Muslim children through arts and crafts. She's actually an art teacher. Art education is what her major was. And so it's a tremendous work. So we visit there and we minister in the Arab church and other churches. And of course, uh, there's a lot of discipleship. We get people together, different things are going on. You're gonna see a little bit of that. And then finally in January, uh, I went to India for the first time in, uh, since 1986, in 1986, I went to India and did some things with Youth with a Mission. But a brother asked me to come to do Bible Institutes for Pastors, and it's in a place called Rajamundre. Uh, Hyderabad is in south central, excuse me, south central India, and if you go east towards the coast, it's an area there in Andhra Pradesh, and it's actually an area where there's persecution. And so uh, we're going to go again in November of this year, and I'll be training uh, pastors in Bible institutes. And then uh, in October, 10 days after I get back from Ohio, I go to Russia and Ukraine. So basically what you're gonna see is gonna be replicated. You need to pray for me, <laughs> okay? And we'll move quickly, but they're, they're good slides. So this is the CIS, which is what's left of the USSR, and Russia being the largest, then Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and you know about the tension between Ukraine and Russia. It isn't in the news that much anymore because it's kind of a stalemate right now. But they, did, they are occupying uh, two oblasts on the uh, eastern edge of Ukraine. And of course, they took Crimea, uh, which is uh, actually, that was kind of an iffy thing because Crimea is almost like an island. It's a peninsula connected to Ukraine, but it's also got a bridge to Russia. And basically, it was always Russian until the 50s when Khrushchev, who was a Ukrainian, gifted it to Ukraine for political reasons. So there's a large, Sevastopol is the largest uh, warm water Russian uh, military seaport. So, you know, but the way they did it was really, you know, it's kind of, Putin's a bit of a bully, you know, he, the way they did it. So uh, we have uh, the CIS, go ahead. And then this is Russia, and uh, it's huge. It's one-tenth of the land mass of the earth, uh, largest country, richest in natural resources, but they don't have the infrastructure even yet to actually access it all. And everything from wood, trees, fur, uranium, gold, oil, 
uh, I read a, a booklet coming back from, uh, it was a Ukrainian booklet because Putin's tried to keep this under, but after uh, uh, Glasnost Pestroika, all these oil companies went in and did joint ventures and they found that all this equipment was like 1950s. So they had no way really of knowing what the oil reserves were. So all these different companies, uh, both British and American, went in, new equipment, set it all up, checked the oil reserves. Turns out Russia has the oil, oil reserves in the world, larger than Saudi Arabia. They're trying to keep that under because that affects markets and stuff. But that's actually the truth. And then Putin basically uh, levied uh, penalties against the American companies for environmental uh, penalties, you know, like they somehow somehow basically went against environmental laws and he forced them out and they confiscated all the equipment and they nationalized the oil. So basically the Russian government owns all the oil and they got our equipment and they forced us out and uh, they're using the oil to rebuild the military infrastructure. So go ahead. Uh, this is a uh, communal farm and uh, it's quite huge and after uh, freedom came they started parsing it out and selling it. Uh, because it belonged to the government, government didn't want to keep it up, so private, but it's huge. And uh, so this Christian organization bought a plot of land in the middle of it, and they have access to it, but it's about four or five miles back to get to it. And uh, I've had to go through all kinds of different climates. One time I showed up and it was early, it was late winter, and it was totally snowed in, and they took me in in a one-horse open sleigh. I mean, it was just, and with fur, you know, they had fur all over me, and it was just cold, and it was a whiteout, and, and we're going across the tundra, and I'm looking around, you know, and you couldn't see the horizon. It was like, the, you know, it was the same color as the sky. It was just, and I thought, you know, Dr. Shivago, that's what I thought about. But this time, first time, it was the winter snow melt, and so it was like mud, you know, up to here. And on the way out, we got stuck, and I got out in the mud and almost lost my shoes. I mean, it was that bad. So uh, it was really hard. This is a huge military. It's about a three-quarter ton. I, in one of these big military vehicles. Go ahead. Go ahead. And there's the rehab center, and, and we helped actually develop that. Uh, there's a church in New Hampshire that paid for the building on the left, which is like a cow barn. Go ahead. Uh, most of these attics are from the uh, Afghan war, and um, basically opium really hard stuff. Most of them have been in prison. they got prison tattoos all over and stuff. And uh, There's nothing more exciting than talking to some, one of these hard guys whose heart has been broken by the gospel. I mean, it's really... And they're having tremendous success. Uh, they actually held a, uh, a tent crusade where all they did was have addicts share their testimony. It was just amazing what uh, the gospel and the infilling of the Holy Spirit uh, delivers them from these things. Go ahead. This is the main church in Verona, Oblast, which was that red area you noticed there. And uh, they're broken up by oblasts, which are like states, and they have governors. And the capital of the oblast is the name of the oblast. And then as you get out into the, uh, in, uh, out into the areas of Russia, they have what's called autonomous republics that have presidents. A lot of them are Muslim. And there's a real tension uh, constantly in this nation to hold it together. I remember Putin said one time, they were talking about how autocratic and stuff he was, and he said, he said basically, he said the only thing Russians understand is the strong right arm. And he, he's right. It's just, 
You have to be very strong or the whole thing would just come apart. Uh, this is the main church. Uh, when I first was in this brother's church in 1990, it was a house church. There was about 30, 40 people packed into his father's village house. And he was a younger man, of course. It was 30 years ago. And uh, now look at this church. Go ahead. It's really amazing church. They love American teaching. You know, basically, they don't have many teachers. They have preachers. And the difference is they take a verse and they exhort. Uh, but teaching, American teaching, is empirical. You know, we build line upon line, precept upon precept. We bring it all together, you know. And when we do that, it's like, they're, oh, man, they're just excited. And, you know, I always tell them, I say, now, look, I'm a teacher, so I want you to take notes. I said, you know, you can throw them away on the way out, but, you know, just the process of writing it down. The more you use, use your hand, use your eyes, you're listening, different things, you'll remember it. And so I church with all these little babushkas, you know, little old ladies with the, with the head coverings, and I'm standing there, and I said, I said, now, how many have heard me teach before? They raised their hand, I said, how many have their pencils and paper? And they go, <laughs> little old ladies, you know, I it's okay. Go ahead. Isn't that amazing? 30, 40 people. It used to go this way. They turned the church around so they could put it in a balcony. They just did that about a year ago. Go ahead. Uh, on Sunday, I usually preach in three churches. That is exhausting. But they just want as much as they can get out of you. This is the second church. This is actually the host church that I'm in. The pastor that uh, is pastor of this church is um, supported by two churches in New Hampshire. Uh, we have a sister church project where you can adopt a pastor and uh, be able to visit and you know have, have responsibility for a church. And this is Easter, so you got a lot of kids things going on. Go ahead. And again, uh, this guy started his church in his basement. And it was just a little church, and it got so big... You know, what they did is, it's hard to understand, you're in a basement below the ground, right? So they busted out the wall and dug out into the yard and then, you know, <laughs> and they're still holding meetings there, but they moved, they finally built a church. Go ahead. Go ahead. You'll notice there's some Africans in there. This is a very contemporary church, and uh, these brothers are from Ghana, I think. And Russia still offers free scholarships to African students. They did this under communism to spread communism, but they, they still offer it so they can come to Russia and, and receive a free college education. Go ahead. This is a men's meeting. Go ahead. A lot of young men. This, I love this one, you know, just teaching and just wonderful time. Go ahead. And then we took a picture of the group. A lot of young men. These are healthy. Really healthy, true. Real mixture of old and young. It's really great. Go ahead. Uh, this is another brother who just built a church. Uh, this this brother, another two churches in New Hampshire support him. Go ahead. And this is a uh, church camp they hold every year. Go ahead. He sent me some pictures of this. So they have a teaching venue. Go ahead. Worship team. Go ahead. Go ahead. Isn't that amazing? This is Russia. I mean, maybe you're not old enough. I mean, some of you younger ones are going, oh, yeah. 
us older ones are going, oh my God, what is this? This is Russia. I mean, it's the evil empire. I mean, this is Russia. This is Alexei and Victoria. They're just really, really sweet couple, good friends. Go ahead. Okay, then we went to Kiev. Go ahead. And I had to travel outside the country because uh, Putin says they're at war with Russia, so there's no uh, transportation between. I used to take the train, uh, but you can't fly, trains, nothing. You have to go out and come in. So I basically went through Yerevan, Armenia, and as we were landing, I saw this beautiful mountain. I took a picture of this mountain. I said, what is that? He said, oh, that's Mount Ararat. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like jumping in my Bible. My mind's just doing all these things, you know. And I was in the airport trying to figure out, how am I going to get to this mountain? I didn't have time, you know. Beautiful airport, too. Go ahead. And then went to Kiev, from Yerevan to Kiev, so it's a hop. Go ahead. This is the Kiev Oblast. It's divided by the Dnieper River. Uh, there's actually the very first uh, Russian. At that time, Kiev was the capital, was baptized in the Dnieper River. Go ahead. And Kiev itself is divided, old Kiev, new Kiev, by the Dnieper River. Go ahead. Uh, this is our Bible Institute for pastors and church workers. We've been holding these for a good period of time. Uh, two days, Friday and Saturday. I'm trying to get Tim to come teach, so you just pray for me about that. I'd like to do that. And uh, so I really need more teachers. I, I have a fellow coming this time who uh, past president of Evangel Theological Seminary, Assembly of God, wonderful brother. And Evangel is the, they have a seminary in Kiev, but he's going to be teaching. So it's about 30, 35 pastors, a few bishops, which are men who oversee more than one church. Go ahead. And that's my translator. Go ahead. And you write in English, and then he writes in Ukrainian. So go ahead. Wonderful, wonderful guys. So I, I teach from 9 to 1, and then we have lunch, and then they've asked, they want to exercise their, their brothers, and so they have a Ukrainian teacher teach in the afternoon and two days. So it's about eight hours of teaching, maybe four or five uh, different teachings. Go ahead. And that's my wife there in the front on the right. We support those two pastors on the left, Sister Church Project. Actually, the guy, this is um, uh, Anatoly, and Anatoly is supported by a church in Mississippi. And this is the other guy next to him on the right is Pastor Peter, and he's supported by Painesville Assembly of God. And they've been supporting him for since George Flattery, which is way, way back, long time. Go ahead. And we take a class picture. We actually support each one of these guys in the front. Go ahead. Uh, we then uh, took the train to Venitsa. You can see Kiev up there. And Venitsa is uh, the location where um, our translator, one of our translators lives, and his father has a church. And in Venitsa, there's also an unregistered seminary. When I say unregistered, these are churches that refuse to affiliate with the government. They feel that uh, even though there's freedom now, it's not going to last. One brother said, actually, he said, uh, the Lord already spoke to me that we were going to, go, we were going to enter into uh, greater darkness than ever before, and I would go back to prison. He had already spent five years in prison, and he shared there was a prophecy given. So a lot of these churches just don't want to have anything to do with the government. They have a seminary 
in this city, and I teach there. It's uh, one whole week. I teach from uh, 9 o'clock till 1, so that's four hours, five days, 20 hours teaching. It's exhausting, but uh, very rewarding. Go ahead. So this is the seminary church. Go ahead. And again, you know, start with 30, 40 believers. This is a big, very big church. Go ahead. Uh, this is a smaller church, and this is the father of our translator, a very contemporary church. Uh, this is basically what you would, I guess, you know, it's kind of like, they call it uh, unaligned, you know, charismatic, more charismatic. Go ahead. Very nice church. Go ahead. About 40, 50 people. Really nice time. This is the seminary. I'm teaching in the seminary. Go ahead. It's a bachelor's program. Usually there's 15, 20 students. Very serious students. I mean, I, I really enjoy it. They really take to heart when you're teaching. Go ahead. Uh, this is a, a school. Uh, our translator is a teacher of English, and he has invited us to go to the schools and share our testimony and so on. And this is the principal, and she has approved it. She said, you can come anytime, talk about anything you want to talk about. It's tremendous. And it's like going back in time, because these kids are just all wide-eyed, kind of innocent. I mean, you know, the biggest problems they have are some alcohol and smoking in the bathroom. It's nothing like what we deal with. Go ahead. So my wife's sharing her testimony. Go ahead. This is high school. And, you know, there's always a class clown. You got one over here, over there. Go ahead. Go ahead. It was fantastic. I love doing this every time. I'd go there just for that. Go ahead. Uh, then we went back to Kiev. Go ahead. Go ahead. And this is a rehabilitation center outside of Kiev. Again, you can see some really hard, tough guys. Love Jesus. They have a men's facility and a women's. I was teaching in the men's. My wife was with the women. Go ahead. Uh, this guy here in the front, he was a lieutenant in the Ukrainian army. He's a, just a wonderful, crazy guy. I really love him. <laughs> He's the assistant director. He said, let's get a selfie. Okay. <laughs> All right, go ahead. This is the host church, and uh, Pastor Dima is the pastor of this church. And when I first went to this church in the 90s, it was in a house in a village, and it was about 40, 50 people packed into this little house. To get in, I had to go like this, you know, go like this. And when I got done, I, had the, I was with the leader standing there, and there was somebody right in my face, and I had to preach like that. And the next year I came, and there was only three families. And I said, Dima, what happened to your church? He said, oh, America opened their doors to Russian immigrants. This was like 92, 93. He said, my whole church immigrated to America. And he started over, three families. Watch this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Look at this. And this church, uh, I won't tell you how much money, but, you know, Aquila Bible Chapel, uh, used to be Dan Detweiler, you know, and then it was Jim Eikenberger and those guys. But anyway, it's over there near Burton, they helped build this church. Amazing, little tiny church. And they built this big church. Go ahead. Amazing, go ahead. Went to Spain, Barcelona, go ahead. It's up there. Right on the Mediterranean, go ahead. Uh, this is a Honduran mission church. 
uh, for a number of years I would go to Honduras and minister in churches in a group called Amore Viente, and it was actually started by an American. He went down there uh, as a missionary and he was having no success at all. So he said, well, I'll open my house on a Saturday night, have coffee and other things, guitar, young people can come over and hang out. And out of that came a whole stream of churches. It's a huge stream of churches. And the ones in Honduras still meet on Saturday, Saturday evening, which is nice because it's really hot. So Saturday evening is nice. The one I went to had 500 in their service. And they do house churches. And they had 600 in their house churches. And it's called the Moriviente. Well, they got this thing about missions. And they felt like they needed to go out and do missions in Spanish-speaking countries. So they're like in Peru and different places, and they sent a group to Spain to evangelize Spain from Honduras. Look at this church. And most of those are young people, if you look. Go ahead. And they're all called Amoriviente. Amoriviente, Spain, and so go ahead. And that's my daughter. Go ahead. Tremendous time. Go ahead. Then there's an Arabic church, and this is from the work that my daughter does. When people get saved, they have a church, and uh, this is uh, an Egyptian brother, and uh, he's my translator. He's also the pastor. Go ahead. Uh, a year ago, that pillar was a wall, and they had to open it up and move it into the next area. They had some other rooms, and they just opened it up. So these are all Muslim converts. And in this particular service, there are immigrants from Syria who have fled Syria because of all the persecution and stuff. So some of them were Christians in Syria, and now they're attending this church. Go ahead. This is India, and uh, every, every work in India has either a boarding school or orphanage. There's a lot of kids in need. Uh, this is a mixture of Christian children, um, also children from the village. When this guy wanted to build this school, he went to the village elders, We'd like to build a school. We will give you land if you let our kids go to your school. Now, these are Hindus, and this is a Christian school. They start the day with worship, and they end the day with prayer. It's the most powerful thing you've ever seen. These kids are filled with the Spirit. It's just powerful. Go ahead. Look at this. Go ahead. Uh, this is uh, part of the network of pastors that we'll be working with. These are village pastors, each one for a different village. And this is Vimal, the leader, and he's translating for me. Go ahead. Uh, we prayed over each pastor, and there was prophetic words, scripture. It was a really powerful time. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is a normal church service. Everything's outdoors because of the fact that it's a temperate climate. Go ahead. Isn't that great? Go ahead. And they had a time where uh, people were sharing their scripture memory verses. We should do that here. You ought to do that here. <laughs> That's the hardest thing for me, scripture memory. I mean, my mind's about as disciplined as, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I was watching. My head was out here somewhere, <laughs> you know. Go ahead. This is a youth group. Go ahead. And uh, we ate together afterwards. Go ahead. And this is what we ate just about constantly. Rice. On the right is dal, which is a uh, vegetable soup with uh, curry and a hard-boiled egg for protein.
Very poor people. This is what we ate. Every once in a while we get chicken because we're Americans. Go ahead. Uh, these are tribal pastors, so there's the two groups. So you're talking about, you know, about 30, 40 pastors. These guys work amongst tribal areas, very insular. Each tribe has its own language, very in constant in Hinduism. And most of these guys, many of these guys uh, were Hindu priests at one time before they came to the Lord. And this is where the persecution lies. These are fabulous guys. So I'm going to be going teaching uh, Bible institutes, which means I'll be teaching all day for like two days or something. I just did one session here, and they loved it. And they said, you've got to come back for two weeks. And so November, I'm going back. Go ahead. Go ahead. Then they had me do an outdoor crusade, which is really out of my comfort zone. I'm not an evangelist. You know, the Bible says do the work of an evangelist. So I did. I shared my testimony, and they said it was really powerful. Go ahead. This was just outdoors in the midst of a neighborhood. Okay. So pray for me. We're going back uh, October, Russia, Ukraine, November, India. Okay. All right. So we have a book table out there. And um, I want you to know that the books actually are cheaper uh, than you can get them. We get them in quantity. Um, it's very interesting that right now they're publishing a lot of classic books again. Uh, you, there's stuff out there, Watchman Nee, Andrew Murray, um, Madame Goyan, Mueller, just incredible uh, books. You know, Practicing the Presence of God, Waiting on God by Murray. I took our leadership group through this. This is great for a group. And um, this is uh, Mueller on prayer. And then there are some teaching booklets. And we have a newsletter. I wish, please get the newsletter. It's our spring newsletter. It tells more about this. And if you want to get the newsletter in paper, put your postal address on a piece of paper or if you want it by email. Okay? And there's a bunch of bookmarks, uh, which are free. Just take, take whatever you want. Uh, some of them are teaching. Some of them are quotes, others are verses. All right. So, every year I pray and ask the Lord for a word for that year. It started out for our own church. Um, we have uh, seven elders. Um, we don't really have a senior pastor. It's just the way our government works. We do have a brother who's church administrator, another one who's a teacher who are paid full-time but we share in that responsibility, seven elders. And because of my prophetic gift, the brothers have asked me at the beginning of the year to give a, a word for the year. So I pray and I ask the Lord for a word for the year. Usually it's topical, and I think I've given it here. Uh, endurance, something you know, different specifically. And I carry it with me, and I pray over each church I'm in, and if it seems to fit, I go ahead and share that. This year the Lord gave me an area of scripture, which is a little more unusual. So I'm going to be sharing with you this morning the story of Ziglag. And that's 1 Samuel chapter 30. Ziglag. <clears throat> there was a time uh, during the period when Saul was seeking to kill David that David said to himself, I will go to the land of the Philistines. And if I do that, then Saul cannot pursue me because the Philistines and the Israelites were constantly at war with each other. 
So David did this. He convinced the Philistines that he had defected. And they knew about the tensions between him and Saul, but that he had defected to them. To them, it was a great honor because David was a great warrior. You know, they talked about uh, Saul has killed his thousand, David has killed his ten thousand. So he went to the town of Gad and he met a prince by the name of Achish and became Achish's friend. And again, Achish felt this was a great thing to have David. David was famous. So David and his 600 mighty men were there in the city of Gath and they were with their children, their wives. So you're talking about a very large group. And so over a period of time, David went to Achish and he said to him, he said, why should I be such a burden to you living in the royal city? Give us a city to live in. And Achish gave him the city of Ziglag. The city of Ziglag was built into a fortress like a refuge, occupied by David, his 600 mighty men, their wives, their children, a large group of people. And from that city, David would go out and raid other areas, pillage, and come back to this refuge city of Ziglag. So in 1 Samuel 30, we have this occurring. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag, they were returning to Ziglag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziglag. They had attacked Ziglag and burned it with fire. They had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with them lifted up their voices and wept. They lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. So you can picture what happened here. They were devastated, had lost everything. It talks about David had lost his two wives, his children. They'd been taken captive. Then it says David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the souls of the people were grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. They blamed David. Now, so you're you're thinking about this and you put yourself in this place. You've lost everything. The very men who would die for you, your loyal men, friends, comrade and zarn, they turn on you, they're talking about stoning you. But then it says in verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the King James Version, it says David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. There are various areas in Scripture where you hear something like this and and questions come to your mind and they aren't answered. They don't tell you what he did. It basically jumps into verse 7, calls for the priest, he seeks God, and God tells him to pursue them. We'll get to that in a minute. But there's an empty, and I want to know, what did David do to encourage himself in the Lord? But it doesn't say. Now we can presume... But actually, if we look at the Psalms of David, that's where he records what he did in times of distress and in times of incredible uh, pressure and warfare. So I went to the Psalms and I looked at it and I found three things that I believe David did to encourage himself in the Lord. We need to hear these because we can do them also. They're very clear. Number one, he brought to remembrance 
the works of the Lord. He meditated and brought to remembrance the good works of the Lord. He remembered Goliath. He remembered uh, the lion and the bear. He remembered all the different things that had happened in his life and how God had kept him. Psalm 143, verse 4. Psalm 143, verse 4. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old, and I meditate on all your works, and I muse on the works of your hands. In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah says basically the same thing. Now, Lamentations, you know, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He prophesied during a time when Israel was under the judgment of God. And uh, Lamentations is actually means sorrow, the sorrow of Jeremiah or the weeping of Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you read Lamentations up to uh, chapter 3, verse 21, you hear things like this. He says, God is like a bear waiting around a corner to rend me. He says, God has placed me as a target and he's shooting his arrows at me. Other things, you know, he's put my teeth in gravel, you know, all kinds of, you're reading this stuff. And then it gets to Lamentations 3.21 and he says this. This I recall to my mind. So he remembers the goodness of the Lord. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. How does he know that from past experience? And then he says, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. It goes on to say that God is good to those who wait for him and he will save them. It goes on. You can read that whole area. It's excellent. Jeremiah was remembering the ongoing goodness of God and had hope. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this is another area where, again, the Philistines and the Israelites were constantly at war. And uh, this is 1 Samuel 7 verse 11. It says, The men of Israel went out of Mizpah, and they pursued the Philistines, and they drove them back as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. He set up a stone as a memorial so that when people saw this stone, they would remember what God has done. Uh, you remember when they went through uh, the Jordan, he said, everybody get a stone, set it up. He said, when your children ask, what are those stones? Tell them what happened. They were consistently doing that. I, I think memorials are wonderful things. They have a purpose. It's to remind you what God has done, to remind you about what has, God has done. I love this term, thus far. It's almost like rhetorical, like thus far the Lord has helped us, meaning he will continue. He has and he will continue. Charles Spurgeon, the great British revivalist in the 1800s, said this, Have we ever had a shadow of a reason to doubt our Father's goodness? Have not his loving kindnesses been marvelous? Has he once failed to justify our trust? We have gone through many trials, 
but never to our detriment, always to our advantage. And the conclusion from our past experience is that he who has been with us in six troubles will not forsake us in the seventh. Hallelujah. Will not forsake us in the seventh. What we have known, listen to this, what we have known of our faithful God proves that he will keep us to the end. Let us not then reason contrary to evidence. Is that good? To do, to think anything else is contrary to evidence. Let us not then reason contrary to evidence. How can we ever be so ungenerous as to doubt our God? If he's been with us in six troubles, he will not forsake us in the seventh. I did a teaching. I think I did it here once on God's faithfulness. Because God is faithful. Though no man be faithful, yet God will be faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is not an attribute of God. Faithfulness is who God is. Faithfulness is who God is. He cannot be but faithful. Spurgeon also said this. Faith looks back upon the past, for her battles have strengthened her, and her victories have given her courage. She remembers that God has never failed her. He has never failed her. It's one of the attributes of faith. Okay, number two. He meditated on Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 78. Psalm 119, verse 78. Actually, Psalm 119 is filled with these kinds of verses. Psalm 119, really, the whole, the whole chapter, he basically lifts up the Word of God, talks consistently about the Word of God. Psalm 119, 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate upon your, upon your precepts. The Scriptures give us comfort and hope. Look at 2 Peter 1, 19-21. This is probably lately for me one of the most powerful verses in reference to the Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 19. We have the prophetic word confirmed. It calls Scripture prophecy that has been confirmed. And you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it defines prophecy as that which gives comfort gives exhortation and encouragement. The prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Then it goes on and says that prophecy was not given by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word confirmed. I remember... um, I have another teaching I was doing on, on spiritual warfare where they, uh, Paul says to Timothy, uh, wage the good warfare. Uh, don't forget the prophecies that were spoken over you. He's talking about how prophecy uh, equips you and strengthens you to wage the good warfare. And then I shared, we too have prophecy to wage the good warfare. It's right here. Right here. The inspired word of God, the prophetic word confirmed. Martin Luther said this, When we're faced with disasters and when we're overwhelmed by darkness, 
When things seem so dark that we doubt that we are pleasing to God, then we should learn to reach for the Bible. We should recognize that we live in a dark world. The only reason we can see it all is that the light of God's word shines brightly. And that fits, a light that shines in a dark place. Prophecy confirmed. George Mueller, Austrian missionary to England, who was director of orphanages, and I have some books out there. Actually, I have George Mueller's biography out there. But basically, he made a covenant with God that he would not share with any man his needs, but he would only pray and God would meet his needs. He was a great, great man of prayer and faith. Incredible testimony. He kept a journal of each one of his uh, prayers. He would write down uh, what he prayed, when he prayed it, uh, the date it was answered, and how it was answered. You know, They asked George Mueller one time about this, and he said, do you know, he said, I've been praying for a man for 65 years and six months to be saved. He's not yet saved. But he will be, because I'm praying. That's what he said. And in this journal, when George Mueller died, it was the only prayer that wasn't answered in that journal. And the man received the Lord as he was standing by the graveside, and they lowered George's body into the grave. He gave his life to the Lord. There's a... This book has more. It's incredible. But George Mueller said this, and it was interesting. I didn't know all I thought I knew about George Mueller because once he established all these orphanages and he kind of, you know, he he didn't finish, but I mean it was just really established, he kind of retired into a traveling evangelist. And he started traveling and he went to Europe and did all kinds of things. It was amazing. In his old age he did that. But he was a real word guy and he said this, Through his word, our Father speaks to us. Isn't that good? Encourages us, comforts us, instructs us, humbles us, reproves us. Meditation on God's word has given me the help and strength to pass peacefully through deep trials. Without spiritual preparation, the service, the trials, the temptations of the day can be overwhelming. David meditated upon scripture. I believe that in the Psalms. Uh, say that clearly. Number three, he prayed and he worshiped the Lord. That's probably the greater part of the Psalms, but he prayed and worshiped the Lord. Psalm 4, verse 1. Psalm 4, verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. And we hear it in Philippians chapter 4 in the New Testament. Paul says this, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Uh, this is an area of scripture that's well known to us. Be anxious for nothing. Here, here it is as new and afresh. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now you can see how that would apply to David's situation. You can see how that would apply. Cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will keep your heart and your mind at peace. Martin Luther said this about prayer. Prayer is our comfort. It is our strength. It is our salvation. I love this part. 
It is our first line of defense against all our enemies. First line of defense against all our enemies. Charles Spurgeon said about prayer, prayer must not be our chance work, but our daily business, our habit, our vocation. We are to be addicted to prayer, meaning we can't do without it. We must be immersed in prayer, as in our element. We are to pray without ceasing. I believe that. I really try to practice that, and I've asked the Lord to remind me when I drift because it's so powerful. It is to be a holy addiction. When I wake up in the morning, it's, it's, you know, I could tell you old stories about my life, but I won't. But I wake up in the morning, so the first thing I think about is the Lord and praying, and I just start praying. We cannot do without it. David also worshiped the Lord. We see this throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 34, verse 2 through 4. Psalm 34, 2 through 4. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. I was looking at this, and I thought, what does this practically mean? Magnify the Lord. It means to make the Lord larger than any of your problems, to magnify him to the extent that he just fills all the space and the light pushes the darkness out because God is so big. There's no room for anything else. That's what it's saying. It's very practical. It's very practical. In Psalm 22, 3 through 5, it says basically the same thing from another perspective. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you. They cried to thee, and they were delivered. They trusted in thee, and they were not confounded. The Hebrew word here for inhabit is the word yashab, which means to sit down, to dwell, to remain, to bide, to tarry. In the King James, it actually says he's enthroned in the praises of Israel. Practically, what that means is when we worship God, God takes note, takes a chair, comes over, sets it in, his, in the praise, and sits in it. Practically. What does that mean? That means that when we worship and praise the Lord, the manifest presence of God comes. You know, when we're worshiping the Lord, I take time and note to just open myself to receive whatever God has for me, healing, whatever, because in the presence of the Lord, all these things are available. That's what this is saying. That as we worship the Lord, His presence comes. And where His presence is, darkness cannot abide. Magnify the Lord. Let Him inhabit your praises. The Psalms are filled with David worshiping and praising the Lord in extreme circumstances. David prayed and worshiped the Lord. When we are discouraged... When we are depressed or in despair, when we are afflicted by spiritual warfare, we are to encourage and strengthen ourselves in the Lord. That is the instruction of Scripture, even as David did. Number one, by bringing to remembrance the works of the Lord throughout your life, the goodness and faithfulness of God, that if he has kept you in six trials, he will keep you in the seventh. 
He will keep you in this one. Number two, by meditating upon Scripture. Scripture is the prophetic word confirmed. It is given by God to build us up and to comfort us. Number three, by praying and worshiping the Lord, to cast our burdens on the Lord and to magnify his presence. Where worship and praise exist, God's presence abides. Within God's presence, you have peace, you have power, you have clarity spiritually. I mean, there's times in worship where something I've been mulling about, all of a sudden he answers it. I have to grab something and write it down. You know, we need to be attentive to what God wants to do through worship. So what happened next? You know, I just kind of filled in between verse 6 and 7. Okay, verse 7, 1 Samuel 37. David called the priest to him. He said, bring me the ephod. And he sought God. And he asked God, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answered, pursue, for you will surely overtake them and without fail recover all. 1 Samuel 16, 30, 16. They come upon them. They're looking down into this valley and it says they were spread out over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Not only Ziglag, just an incredible amount of spoil. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took, in addition, he took all the flocks and herds they'd driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. David not only recovered all that had been lost, but he took away with him the whole spoil of the Amalekites. From utter darkness to brilliant light. And in between, he expressed trust in the Lord by encouraging himself in the Lord. It's a powerful testimony. This is the story. This is the lesson of Ziglag. So next time you're in distress, you're depressed, you're warfare, all these things are occurring, you just need to remember Ziglag. You don't even need to remember the whole teaching. Just remember Ziglag, and then the teaching will pop out. <laughs> it says the Holy Spirit will bring all things to remembrance. Remember Ziglag. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Let's stand. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for the scriptures. I am so thankful for the scriptures. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who moves across these words and brings life and just opens it for us. You know, having read that so many times and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just says, oh, this is, and opens the word of God. We thank you so much. Lord, help us to be diligent and disciplined, to read and to meditate upon the word of God, to pray over it and to soak in it, oh God. Help us with this issue about praying without ceasing. Just, just tap us and say, remember, just remind us, Lord. We really need your help. You know, our greatest thing is we're just, we're just distracted. We're not out 
chasing over sin. We just get distracted. We're undisciplined. God, forgive us. Our priorities are askew. We're not doing bad things, but we're not doing the best. Oh, God, help us. Help us to do the best, which is the word of God in prayer, which is abiding in your presence. And use us for your glory. Give us a burden for those around us that are lost, those around us that are hurting and in pain, that we have medicine to give them, that we can pray for them, and we can believe with them, and we can share with them the word of God. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.